Today's heavy networking sponsor is Appstra. Appstra enables continuous automation and validation of your data center network architecture and operations. Find out more at appstra.com slash packet pushers. Today's sponsor, DriveNets, offers a network cloud, a hugely scalable network on a disaggregated platform. Higher capacity, lower cost. Find out more at drivenets.com resources. That's drivenets.com resources. The Forpocalypse is coming, and service providers need more tools in their toolbox to combat congestion and eyeball networks. And if you didn't get all that, what we're saying is 4K streams are going to kill the internet. That's what we're saying here. All right. So, so here's the, the what we've been doing so far. Local content caches, right? Local content caches close to your eyeballs isn't going to be quite enough, and so multicast multicast to the rescue and you're thinking you mean multicast like on the public internet multicast for reals didn't we try that once and i thought that didn't work out so well trying to do big multicast things on the internet so why is it going to work this time Okay, that's the setup for today's conversation, and Jake Holland of Akamai is here to tell us just why interdomain multicast is important and why this time we can make it work. So, hi, Jake. Uh, nice of you to join us on Packet Pushers Heavy Networking. As we were talking before we hit the record button here, your first time podcasting, <laughs> you're jumping in to the deep end of the pool, my friend. So, uh, so welcome to the show. Hi, Ethan. Thanks a lot. Uh, thanks for having me, and I'm glad to be here. Yeah. Uh, good to meet you guys. Well, well, let's set this up in, in some more detail. I kind of set it up in the intro, but we need to talk about the problem a little bit. Um, globally distributed content caches, that is, everybody's got a copy of the Netflix library close to them somewhere is basically how we're doing most of this video streaming across the internet today, Netflix just being one example. But uh, you would argue that distributed content caches, that's not going to be good enough in a 4K world. That's why I said for apocalypse. Uh, okay, so so explain to us why why caches aren't going to work going forward. So at Akamai, of course, we're aware that caches are are great. Um, <laughs> I, I don't mean to say we'll stop doing caching. What I'm trying to say here is that it's not going to be enough to to handle everything it needs to handle. So a 4K stream takes 20 megabits, and you know when you try to deliver 20 megabits to 100 million viewers at the high level there. That is two petabits per second. And that's just the wrong order of magnitude for what any of the uh, CDNs or even all of them put together can do today. So when you're talking about these large scale events that kind of drive the peak loads on networks, the caching is going to have a problem with 4K and it's the scale is not really keeping up. But there's more to it. There's like the game downloads are also a problem. The game download, you know, themselves quite large. Hmm. Uh, some of them are coming in at, at like 200 gigabytes for a download. And when you do the math on that, this also is like you try and deliver one of those to, to 100 million people and you're looking at like two exabytes, which again is the wrong order of magnitude. Can you just synchronize game downloads so that they could, like when you establish a multicast tree, it's a one to many. But it also implies that the many are getting the same data because as the packet flows from source to destination, yeah, yeah. the devices in the path have to duplicate the packet and then pass it on. So, you know, comes in one port and goes out, you know, five ports, 10 ports, 24 ports. Normally the way game downloads works is the, the person at the other end initiates the download or initiates the download at a random interval. Nonetheless, what you do have is a lot of people pulling that data at the same time. Uh, we do have a prototype that 
runs in lab. This is actually uh, pretty similar to the problem that Flute solved. But the the basic answer is you chop your uh, you chop your large file up into buckets. You know you FAC encode your buckets and you deliver those buckets at kind of the same rate spread across yeah. your uh, across your multicast channels. That however many you're going to dedicate to. Uh, to delivering that content. So you're not going to deliver a call of duty. So we did a show with uh, Dave Temkin and the uh, CTO of BT uh, in the UK who runs the telco network, and he was saying that the key issue is the call of duty updates. That's the critical factor in the network design. Is not nothing else matters except for when call of duty gets <laughs> a patch gets yeah. released and it's a if, 35 if you... update. If you don't plan to handle 4K, then yeah, I think that's that's a fair assessment, really. Yeah. Um, so the 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 point is that yeah, I mean, people will start at a random time, but you'll just run one uh, one stream for the whole you know day or maybe two days or something. Uh, but that one stream is going to be, uh, or you know, uh, 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 that'll probably be com- composed of uh, of a few multicast channels, but then users can join multiples of those channels and get the downloaded sort of whatever bit rate they can handle and the uh but it doesn't mm-hmm. you're going to use packet replication in the network to do that delivery and not have yeah. to yeah there's an important architectural detail we haven't really hit on yet dave or jake which is uh where is the bottleneck that is multicast is helping us fix a bottleneck a point of congestion where we can't handle petabits or exabits of data going through at a time so where is that because the, the same number of bits are still yeah. being delivered by the end consumer to the end consumer right so uh i think we've got some common cause here with the networks that we're uh that we're hoping will adopt the the multicast ingest kind of strategy that we'd like to do so we've got a bottleneck on the akamai side right it's this is going to be like in order to do the job that needs doing at at those peak load events uh we're going to need like 10 times the server footprint and that's um you know that's a lot it's kind of expensive we'll get T- there 10 eventually. times the server footprint if we were to stick with the caching model you're saying yeah yeah exactly okay. yeah um you know so i mean that's that's one way to do it sort of but then you have a problem on the downstream side which is like uh um you know it depends what networks you talk to but on those cable loops you know if everybody on the cable loop is trying to fill their full 100 megabit connection they bought at the same time well the those agreements all come with like yeah but that will vary right and and depending which network that is sometimes you're looking at like 3 to 1 sometimes you're looking at you know more like 8 to 1 on how much the upload uh, the upstream uh of that um of the bng can handle right same on the on the passive optical networks um you know and and on these if, kinds if, of if everybody yeah. in the neighborhood jake tries to download the same thing at once at full bandwidth it's not going to happen because upstream from where all of us in our neighborhood are plugged in there's a congestion yeah. point there's an oversubscription that's there exactly right so in that sense, uh, the, this is one of the reasons that the uh, that these big game downloads and the and you know other large events, right? Things like the Olympics, things like uh, you know the Super Bowl, right? These are all disruptive to the networks that are trying to do the delivery, also. And it's not just that the event itself is disrupted, but also all the traffic that's competing with that event that's disrupted, right? So by using packet replication in the network, you can really take the edge off of that 
those peaks that you see on these big events. One, one data stream that gets replicated to all the endpoints that have signed up to re receive a copy of that, um, you know, traditional multicast, just writ at internet scale, as opposed to what we really think of, you know, maybe distributing a little bit of, uh, you know, IPTV, you know, in our enterprise or something. It's just very large. Now we're dealing with many thousands of endpoints and many thousands of potentially uh, multicast streams that we're kicking around. Well, potentially, but uh, I would contend that even if uh, if each network only supports like uh, you know ten or twenty multicast streams at a time, like you know just some fraction of your IPTV distribution, uh, if I can use that to do the packet replication on the popular events, you can get you know ninety plus percent of the benefit you're looking for. It doesn't have to be that every network has to support every multicast stream on the internet. You can just have the networks support the ones that are, you know, allow the ones that are, you know, popular enough that it's causing trouble within that network. And that's enough. So is there multicast happening in some places now? Like, uh, I, I cut the cord long time ago. I'm all streaming all the time. Is that all unicast traffic to me? Or is there, in fact, some multicast happening there? Uh, that is almost certainly all unicast to you. Okay. Um, you know, that's... To you, uh, but... A lot of the CDNs are actually using multicast to prime their cache engines. So if they know that there's a movie or some sort of content which needs to be pumped into all of the cache engines, then they'll actually use multicast to distribute that internally in some sort of overlay is what I've heard. Uh, that may be, um, you know, you can get, you can get benefits from doing that. And uh, yeah. that's not really a pain point on our side. Like we can fill our caches just fine. Um, in some sense, that's, uh, you know, we'll have a single uh, stream pushing the data into the, you know, into the cache uh, sort of cluster that's inside some network. Um, but, you know, if you, I mean, yeah, you can use multicast for that, but that's not where it hurts, right? It's downstream of those edge caches is where you're, is where you run into trouble with your scale. So... See, I'm, I'm having a problem with that. So there's two problems. First of all, um, let's assume for the sake of the argument that networking devices can duplicate packets at speed. And that is a very broad assumption and also an assumption which in the last 20 years has proven false. Sure. The ability of a switch or a router to duplicate packets at line rate is effectively 0%. They can do it for 10% of line rate or maybe maybe 15 or 20%. And quite often, not even. Sometimes multicast can't be more than 5% of the total capacity of the entire unit, right? Sure. So, and one of the things that happened 10 or 15 years ago is multicast got such a bad reputation that there was no effort to fix the duplication function in the ASICs. And today, the duplication function is sort of limited to span and R-span. And even then, it's kind of like, yeah, well, we've got to have it to tick the box. So we just put some stuff in there that does it and nobody tests it. The, the correct version the correct version of the truth is we'll just put it in there and then customers can test it. And if, if it doesn't work, we'll work on it later. So I'm not convinced that vendors per se can produce devices that do packet duplication because the ASICs inside their devices don't do it. Is that 
a fair assumption or am I? I, I would not dispute that that assumption. I think that uh, you know that's that's not universal, but it's certainly a factor. But it doesn't matter that much because you know, for one thing, five percent of line rate is going to be fine for handling a lot of these things. Uh, no, that's you know, per device, not the line rate. So, so if a device is rated for you know four hundred gigabits per second of throughput, it's only good for five percent of the total device capacity. Because it's the the forwarding ASIC or the fabric, which is the you know the actual switching fabric or the routing fabric, whatever you want to call it, the crossbar, which is where the duplication is done. It's not done anywhere else. Sure, sure. So, um, so if you're talking five percent of four hundred gigabits per second, that's twenty gigabits per second, right? And you know, if I had that much multicast capacity for all the downstream users, then you know the idea is that that with that twenty gigabits of of uh, downstream of packet replication, you're going to be able to to you know shave off. Uh, I mean, if if you're only you know if you're getting at least ten to one, then you're looking at shaving off two hundred gigabits of unicast traffic. Yeah, you're saying you're not disagreeing with the performance analysis here, Jake. You just you're saying that what you do get, even though. It doesn't sound like it's great. It's actually enough to produce useful yeah. and meaningful yeah, yeah. results. That's enough to be useful, but then it goes even further because when you get down to the, um, you know, to the edge, to the very edge, right, the last mile of the home, then like on your um, on your passive optical networks or on your cable networks, uh, you actually have at layer one, um, you know, you're going to have fewer bits on the wire if you're, you know, unless you're doing PPP. Uh, as a connection to each of the homes, um, you know, if you're if you're utilizing the capability that's that's inherent to those media, then you can actually, um, you know, there's not there's not an ASIC that has to do the rep the replication. You just send it once, and many people receive it like a broadcast domain. Once it's at that stage, right? So you actually save uh, substantial trap. You know, you don't need to get 400 gigabits a second of multicast uh, with packet replication going in order to make this really, really useful and take the edge off. Especially if you're talking about like, you know, you only address the the one or two major events that are causing your peaks. It ends up that certain key routers that are in the data transfer stream end up only needing to send one copy of that data to whoever the exactly. next uh, router yeah, yeah. is, as opposed to so multiple can, unicast can, streams of that same thing. So let me test the, the limits of that assumption then. How do I know which devices in my path can perform multicast at a given rate? The only way I can know that, like the assumption in the network, the assumption in any multicast is, or any sort of packet forwarding is that the device can forward packets at line rate. So let's say I've got a DSLAM at the edge of the network and it's only got the capacity to do 10 megabits per second of multicast because it's a legacy device. It's been in the ground for 20 years, may not do multicast at all. If you send it a stream of multicast, it's going to just drop those packets blindly. It's got no sort of alerting. It's going to be dumb. And there's no way you're going to be able to put a protocol in to say, oh, I'm overloaded with multicast. Please don't send me any more. I mean, there's nothing in the internet that says no to anything. Sure. Yeah. So, um, so I'm addressing that a couple of different ways. Uh, I mean, to some extent, yeah. If you're running one of those devices, then you know, hopefully, you know about it and you know to be a little bit worried about it. But it doesn't really matter if you do or not, because on the receive side, um, if I'm not, <laughs> if I'm not getting the multicast I'm expecting. 
um, my application is uh, is treating this as optional, right? I'm not saying that there are there's a bunch of you know we're not walking away from unicast anytime soon, right? The multicast yeah. that we're going to be sending is going to be a hybrid multicast, right? So we're talking about uh, unicast that can be supplemented with multicast, and you'll prefer it when you can get it. But when you can't yeah. get it, then it's okay. You're just going to use sure. you know unicast. That's okay. I get that. I mean, I, I sort of got that model because you're you're assuming that the client at the edge of the network or the endpoint at the edge of the network can make a request. And it'll attempt to do multicast. And if the network is configured to accept the multicast request, which we'll talk about more in a minute, Mm -hmm. it would then use that. But when it can't, it'll have to drop back to unicast, right? So the assumption there is that the edge, the endpoints in the network will get some sort of client upgrade that would allow them to use this multicast functionality. That's a substantial activity. So let's assume, and that's on the same sort of, classification as ipv6 ipv4 although from a business perspective at a there is an incentive for the game makers so playstation and microsoft xbox to implement this client because they would get cheaper rates from the cdn providers like your employer akamai uh most likely yeah i mean we haven't worked out all the pricing at some you know at some stage there's going to be yeah the economics of it will change if we get wide adoption but uh you know, like I said, we're to be, be... So what I'm, I'm just drilling into the incent, the business incentives. Yeah, yeah. And so unlike um, IPv6, where there's no business incentive, that you don't save yeah. money by going to IPv6, you don't make more money by uh, spending uh. on IPv6. Yeah, I think the incentives are there, certainly. I mean, yeah. certainly the cost drivers for, you know, scaling it, back. It, it, it's cost events. avoidance. Uh, right. Yeah. It ends up being a, a bandwidth uh, avoidance. You don't. You can run on your existing backbone longer. In, in theory, if you've got all the points along the way that can support the multicast replication and enough volume to matter, which yeah, you're arguing that's that's where we're at. Well, that's one of the factors. But then you've also got four game downloads, for example. You know, when you've got to stagger it out over three days or a week or something. The customers don't like that. Like they want to be able to to everybody who wants it can get it the day that they want it, right? Mm-hmm. Like they want to be able to have a release and push and push that release out and get it to everywhere, right? So you're going to have faster delivery uh, for a lot of these things just because you don't have you know a lot of the most popular things even because you don't have to you know you're not bound by the scale in the same way. Um, likewise, video quality, right? I mean, you can do nine million, you know, whatever Twitch stream views but you're not getting them in 4k and when mm. people want to watch the super bowl then like 4k is uh, nice to have on that right they don't get it today if they're trying to get it over the internet but uh if they could they would <laughs> they shouldn't <laughs> so I, i'm not gonna tell them that greg you can tell them that if you want <laughs> as somebody who watches tv with glasses there's no difference right <laughs> I mean, if your screen is big enough you can see the you know you Sometimes you got to be able to make that line call when the yeah. ball's caught, right? <laughs> yeah, no, I'm with you. And I know that there are people in this world for whom the quality of their television set defines their ego as well, you know, like yeah. there's a 72-inch television. Well, that must be better than 65. I better race out and buy one. There's, there's plenty know, of <laughs> Some of us get our ego from networking and some of us from uh, <laughs> from, from the size TV and the quality of the, the, the television it, they have. It takes all kinds. 
Hello, heavy networkers. We're pausing the show for a brief word from sponsor Appstra. Appstra continuously automates and validates both the data center network's architecture and operations against your desired intent. Using a single source of truth and intent-based analytics, Appstra eliminates complexity, vulnerabilities, and outages, and you get a reliable, secure, and resilient network, even in the presence of day-to-day changes. The unique value for you is that Appster unifies all lifecycle stages by effectively and efficiently converging design with operations. With Appster, your operations begin at day zero, delivering higher value to the business and elevating your infrastructure. The result is savings on downstream costs and exponentially more value from your network investments. On average, Appster customers realize an 80% improvement in operational efficiency, a 70% improvement in mean time to resolution, and a 90% improvement in infrastructure agility. Appster benefits include end-to-end automation that begins at day zero, a dramatic reduction in tooling costs, intent-based analytics, reliable change management, reduced operating expenditures, performance optimization, and compliance validation. You can find out more at appster.com slash packetpushers. That's appster.com slash packetpushers. We thank Appster for being a sponsor. And now back to the podcast. Well, I think we've spent 20-ish minutes here kind of setting up the problem and explaining some of the some of the challenges here. And uh, it feels like we've defined that, okay, multicast isn't like, oh, we're going to replace caches with multicast. No, we're talking about augmenting what we do with caches with uh, multicast and the, the, the kind of the pros and some of the cons of doing that. All right. But we're not talking, Jake, we're not talking about building a gigantic internet-wide single multicast tree with several thousand sources and groups and so on. We're actually talking about the the title of this podcast, which is interdomain multicast. So Jake, we need you to explain for us what we mean by interdomain multicast. Is this multiple domains with their own multicast trees interacting somehow? And so are we defining some sort of an edge spec here, how these different islands of multicast pass traffic back and forth? Yeah. So the specs I've put Forth in the in the ITF at this stage are mostly about connecting multicast islands. The idea is that we would like to put up some some content that uh, can be supplemented by multicast, and we are going to operate the sort of uh, the the specs that are there to enable interested networks to sort of plug into that over a tunnel. And uh, you know th- this is uh, we think that we're going to have to live without that you know, a giant multicast backbone that can handle everything at scale uh, for, for some time to come. But that doesn't have to stop us from getting uh, packet replication at the places where it really matters, right? So um, so, you so just, you, you said tunnel, so let's back up a second here. So a tunnel would be basically, uh, there's a, a, a channel out there I want, I want to have a copy of, and I can, from my own multicast island, subscribe to that, get a copy of it through the tunnel, something like that? Yeah, that's the idea. So, um, right. So the, the first spec we've got up is RFC 8777. And that's, uh, that's Dryad, which is DNS reverse IP for AMT discovery. AMT is automatic multicast tunneling. Uh, that's uh, RFC 7450, I think. Um, and these are, uh, you know, these are the standards we're building that transport on. Um, so the idea is that if you've got users in your network, and you have sort of enabled them to uh, to uh, you know ask the network to deliver my SGs, and I've given them the app that's going to receive the SG. 
um, you know, or the, the client software that's going to, that's going to be asking for that. And that, that, uh, you know, the IGMP or the MLD gets passed into your network and you're going to be able to handle it. Um, then, then the way that you pull that stream is by, uh, using this, uh, using this AMT tunnel. So you're going to go out and, uh, and it uses the, uh, the DNS reverse IP tree. And, uh, there's just a new RR type defined that tells you where you should go to look up that AMT relay that's associated with that specific source IP, right? You're going to find an AMT relay, open an AMT tunnel, and then uh, across that AMT tunnel, the it, so AMT is just designed to be a sort of you know UDP encapsulation of a multicast link. It's almost like running GRE, except it's not going to do anything except allow the uh, the subscription yeah. of huh? the multicast. Uh, channels and receiving of the multicast data that's associated with it. Okay. There's a lot there, but all the mechanisms are in place where you've got a, you've got a directory service via DNS where you can uh, find out where you need to request uh, this particular channel you want to subscribe to and get it into your network over this AMT. Um, uh, what, advanced multicast? I don't know. Whatever, they, uh, whatever that is. Automatic. automatic. There we go. Automatic multicast tunnel. Uh, now I've got, uh, let's assume that that's all admitted and allowed. And I, now I've got my copy of this channel. I want to distribute to my endpoints and I've got my own multicast infrastructure that I'm distributing to. And my endpoints can now sign up for that via the standard IGMP or MLD request. Hey, I want to be part of the group. Okay. You're a part of the group. I'm going to send you a copy of this. Um, so my copy comes in over the tunnel and now I distribute it and it's all quote unquote normal multicast after that yep. point. Um, so my interdomain multicast, then you're, these are just all the mechanisms that I can participate in if I choose to, to get copies of internet wide, widely distributed channels, or it's a mechanism to uh, distribute via the internet or internet wide um, channels, SG source, source and group. Exactly. So, you know, I'm not opposed to having that, you know, magic multicast backbone that would do it all, but you know, I'm not going to wait around for that. We're, we want that packet replication to happen wherever yeah, it makes good it, sense. Because that, that's obviously impractical waiting for yeah. the internet to upgrade to support <laughs> A new uh, IETF standard that, uh, and if you're a backbone provider like level three, what's in it for you? Exactly, yeah. Because you charge by bandwidth. And if by bypassing bandwidth, you're actually shooting yourself in the foot. Perhaps. that. Yeah, there's actually yeah. a negative incentive there. But to some extent, that is certainly possible, yeah. You know, that's not the end of the story, though. There's uh, That's the way that the transport of the data happens. But there's information that as a receiving network, you're going to need to know in order to you know, make sane decisions with that multicast channel that you're trying to let your users subscribe to, right? So when you're running your own TV service and that's running multicast, like a bunch of people are doing this today and that's, uh, you know, that's that's great for them. That's part of why we think this whole thing can work. Like ideally, we're going to be able to kind of piggyback off of those deployments. But, you know, the idea is that when you've got your internet TV thing, you know a whole lot of stuff about the traffic that's getting forwarded. Whereas when you're accepting some random stream uh, that, you know, came off the internet, well, you have no idea, you know, a priori, if you're looking for like a 10 megabit stream or a one gigabit stream or a hundred gigabit stream, like, uh, you know, there's nothing really embedded in there that, that makes it back off or, or push back. Um, and so that's the, uh, that's one of the other uh, specs that we've, put forth is, uh, I call it CBAC. It's a circuit breaker assisted congestion control. 
and the idea is that you do um, kind of the same thing. You have a, a, a lookup into the reverse IP um, for an SRV record. That SRV record gives you uh, tells you where to look for a specific uh, web service, and that thing is just running a, a restconf uh, server, and that restconf server is uh, and you know I didn't use restconf because I'm configuring uh, network gear, but rather because it's already defined as a nice, you know, well-spelled out web API and I can stick my own data in it, right? So it's I've got a Yang model in that spec that just exposes metadata about those SGs, right? So the idea is that you're going to be able to query that thing to find out, well, how much traffic are we talking about if I sign up for this SG? And, you know, other stuff like, well, what MTU am I going to need to support if I want to send this through and should I bother? Right. And your your question as a network is mostly like, yes or no, right now when I've got, you know, users asking for it, should I pass this through my network or is this just a bad idea? And the idea with that spec is to give you all the information you need to make that to make that call and to make it well. So we're ending up with two two layers of metadata here. One is just DNS use um, pointing us to where we can find the rest of the information, whether that's AMT or whether that's uh, the circuit breaker, um, where we can go and pull the rest of the metadata that tells us everything we need to know about that stream so that we can determine, yeah, we can participate in this or no, we don't, or we need to make some changes to accommodate that stream as it comes in. And then you, you said Yang model. So there's a, there's a model like like everything else in the IETF. There's a Yang model that's defining all of the different metadata that we'd want to pull, as you were saying, MTU and et cetera. Right. Yeah. So the idea there is that um, now you've got the information you need to make a good decision. You know, uh, I'm going to be uh, prototyping this in some trials uh, this year. Um, you know, we've got a uh, an ingest platform that'll run this uh, this dryad way to do a lookup of an AMT relay and kick off an AMT relay to pull in traffic and sort of propagate that through a little uh, network that's on GitHub. It's uh, the multicast dash ingest dash platform. You know, it gives you all the instructions for setting up a little, you know, toy uh, multicast capable network. I've got I've got three of them at, in my house right now, but it's running. One of the devices that's running is just sort of an ingest platform that I'm going to be expanding out to do the uh, to do the CBAC spec as well, and to make good choices about, uh, you know, based on its configuration of how much multicast you want to let in. It's going to make choices on like, well, uh, should I allow allow this uh this sg to you know should i go ahead and subscribe to this sg or no um and if you know again if the clients aren't getting the multicast then they'll just uh they'll just be getting it with unicast is my assumption there it would be a fallback of some sort and, and the whole the whole idea here uh jake is we need to make sure we're getting a good copy of that multicast stream that's coming in there's no if if there's congestion along the way and we're only, you know, we're dropping a bunch of packets, the quality of the stream is going to suck. And for IPTV applications, that that's no good. We need to be make, make very sure that we're getting an excellent copy of that multicast data coming in. The way we're running it, if we only get half of a multicast data stream, we'll use the half that we got. But what, we, what we're doing is the sort of uh, reliable multicast approach of uh, taking that data and rebuilding it. And then we just fill it in with, um, with extra information from unicast requests. So we can actually make use of it while it's only getting half, but uh, yeah, you don't want to stay joined to a channel that's getting that's you know dropping half its packets. So uh, oh man, that sounds compute 
intensive to, to try to reassemble that. Well, I mean, there's, there's two different pieces of that. Yeah, I was just going to say, you're asking a lot of an endpoint at that. I don't know if you've looked into Raptor, because um, that's what I thought, too, when I first encountered it. This was, uh, this was actually back in, I think, 2014. And, uh, you know, I, I heard this story and I said, yeah, right. And then I went and benchmarked it. But I am a true believer now. I mean, that thing, uh, that thing, it's amazing what they can do with math nowadays, I, I got to say. Um, well, there's a lot more compute at the edge than they used to well, be. I think, but, uh, yeah, and I think there's so, two different things we're talking about here, Jake, maybe two. So one, you I mentioned, mean, you know, filling in the blanks with Unicast, but but Raptor from the homework I did, correct me where I'm wrong here, but it's forward error correction so that yeah. if there's missing pieces that you receive of a stream, you can use the math to figure out what's missing and then uh, off you go. Yeah, exactly. So uh, essentially, yeah. So um, when... I mean, when I benchmarked this, my target was an iPhone 4 that's going to be able to do 10 megabits per second. Like, what's the overhead going to cost to be doing it with Raptor instead? And my mm. uh, what I came up with was like 4% of the CPU is going to have to be dedicated to that. It's actually like pretty good. I was I was shocked at how good it was. I don't know what uh, the chip is in an iPhone 4 other than it's old and there's a lot newer, <laughs> faster ones now. Damn straight, yeah. So... Uh, <laughs> So the you know I stopped worrying about it. Uh, I, I think we're going to be okay on that front while we're while we're using Raptor. I think if you if you try to use a different FEC like uh, you know there's there's older ones uh, fountain codes that are like uh, Reed Solomon or something that yeah you really did have CPU problems um, both on the on the send and receive side. Ever since discovering how good Raptor is, and, and there's some other competing ones too. Like there's uh, Tetris. That's uh, that's been developed and that seems to be doing pretty good for some streaming stuff. So there's a few different options for kind of things to try in here. But just just talking Raptor though, Jake. You, I mean, you had mentioned um, you know, uh, as much as 50% loss in the multicast stream. FEC is not going to fix a 50% loss scenario. No, 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 no. Okay, so what's our limits with Raptor then? What you're going to need with Raptor is to get like enough data, but it doesn't matter which data you get, right? But not only uh, does that include the data that's sent on the multicast channel? But also you can use the original source data, right? So you can just do a range request. If you got like half as much data as you're expecting for a segment, for a video segment, then you can just do a fetch of another half of the uh, of the segment data and you can probably rebuild it, right? So if you get like a, a little bit of overage, but depending on your segment sizes, you're looking at like two or 3% extra, then you can just rebuild the original segment because you had half the thing out of out of multicast and then you know 53% out of of it out of unicast that totally works and it's the segment identifiers that are making this possible for the endpoint to put all the pieces together right so the sdk that we run is sort of this uh you know you're going to play a regular video player that's doing like hls or dash and the request that it's making to get the segments go into the sdk and the sdk is making a decision for like does this mean we should like start trying to join an SG and uh, how much data have we gotten uh, for this segment off of this SG? And are we able to rebuild the segment or not? And if there's data missing for a particular segment, then we can say, oh yeah, let's go do a unicast request to, to get the rest of the data that we need for that segment. And uh, if there's not data missing, then it means, well, we got that segment built already and we're ready to hand it over. You know, you got to get some timing right you have to add a, a like one segment's worth of a buffer on your latency which yeah I, I know is a problem for sports 
you put those together and you can do this sort of uh, segment-based reliable video playing. Um, and, and we've got a product that does this, by the way. Like uh, we have one of those IPTV services uh, that's deployed. There's people that have their set-top boxes is one of these uh, receivers. It's maybe like uh, 300,000 people now, I think, is last I heard. Uh, I'm not sure how out of date that is. Well, that was my next question is we'd be asking all of this magic to be happening literally in the endpoint. That is the, the Netflix player that is pulling the stream and rendering it and so on. Right. Yeah. So the endpoint would have to be, uh, would have to be, you know, it's, it's really the endpoint and the sender together. Like it's a protocol, right? You have to send UDP traffic that makes sense to the endpoint in order for the endpoint to do something useful with it. Now there's a few different transport protocols that, most of which do roughly the same thing, you know, including six-ish different uh, proprietary versions and a couple of sort of standards-based versions that a few people are running in practice, but the way they're running it in practice is not quite the way it's written in the spec, of course. You know, one day, yeah, I think we want to get to interoperable standards-based uh, transport layer stuff, but just because there's so many of those right now, we're, we're looking at the, unica- at, the, uh, at the UDP layer trying to get that multicast transport to actually, you know, work. And then once that's there, different people can use it and do their own sort of endpoints as long as they, as long as they've got software on the client side that understands the server side that they're talking to, uh, then they're going to be able to make that, that UDP layer work and do a, a similar sort of thing, including our traffic, but also including, you know, anybody else who wants to get in on this. Jeez, these the standards that get written have got to be um, firm and well understood because we're asking a lot of different applications to be able to do all of this in order to make this multicast thing work. Well, yes and no, because some of what you just described, Jake, I guess, couldn't that be just like a nice to have bonus features? Um, it doesn't yeah, really preclude I... um, multicast as is from working um, if we want it to. Yeah, that's that's kind of the approach I'm taking here. Like we do have a bunch of things that are pretty well deployed in the in the sort of at the sort of IP layer. Um, you know, at the transport layer of, you know, getting full segments across or getting a full video stream. Well, there's there's a few things that like work in theory, but nobody's really doing it that way in practice. There's like RTP and there's uh, you know, um loot and norm and and uh you know, people are, are running bastardized versions of these things in some ways, but it's not, uh, you know, there's not really like a good interoperable uh, set of endpoints that are, you know, using fixed standards like there is with HTTP or something, right? It's not, um, and there's a few attempts in this direction, but that's going to take some some more work. Again, I'm not going to want to wait for that to happen. I want to get the packet replication started. I want to deploy my own apps. I want to let yeah. other people deploy their own apps and do the yeah. sign up. So, so the starting point then is the interdomain multicast piece, you know, at least That's, getting everyone you know, participating yeah. in that scheme. It, did the podcast host stop talking? Ah, good. That gives me a minute to talk about DriveNets, a fine packet pushers sponsor. Wait a minute. Was I one of the hosts? Did I? I just interrupted myself, didn't I? You know what? None of that matters. DriveNets matters right now. Well, what does DriveNets do? 
Well, we had DriveNets on Heavy Networking Episode 517, and here's the summary. The DriveNets Network Cloud Routing Software runs on white box hardware and enables service providers and telcos to quickly scale capacity, control capital outlay, and support automation in their networks. Blah, blah, words. What did I just say? Well, scale, right? We're going to add switches to the fabric without it being a big production. Control capital. Stay in control of your spend. Don't give wheelbarrows of gold away to build out the network if you don't have to. Support automation. Yeah, table stakes these days. No one's selling a new network platform without automation because there's no way I'm sitting there banging away on a keyboard device by device for hours at a time because I did that for 20-something years and my fingers still hurt. Here's one more big feature of the DriveNet's network cloud that we explored back in episode 517. DriveNet software enables the use of distributed, disaggregated white box routers that function as an integrated unit. Right, you manage the fabric as a system, not the fabric as a collection of individual network devices that must be tended like sheep wandering around a field. DriveNet is one of the new scalable network approaches, rethinking what's been done for the last 25 years, and they are bringing out the value of network disaggregation, where we can mix and match network operating systems and switch hardware, and they're bringing that to telcos and to hyperscalers. And this means that they can drive costs down because, hey, you can separate your hardware and software spends, and that gives you back some bargaining power. And that means it's easier to make money with your network. To find out more, listen to Heavy Networking Episode 517 from May 2020 and visit drivenets.com resources. Once again, that's Heavy Networking Episode 517 and visit drivenets.com resources. And if you talk to someone at DriveNets, hey, do us a favor. Tell them you heard about them on the Packet Pushers Podcast Network. And now, back to the show. All right. Well, we tried like a, a global internet uh, multicast and that kind of didn't work. Um, no, no one talks about that. It didn't happen. So what, what's different this time that's going to make interdomain multicast, at least that much of all of what we've been talking about here, uh, work in your opinion? Yeah, it's kind of a sad story. Uh, I mean, mostly I think I'm not trying to solve ASM anymore. Back when they were trying to make that thing work, they were using any source multicast. And the idea was that all the endpoints had to subscribe to was a destination group address. And that that destination group address would sort of somehow be, you know, uniquely dedicated to a, a certain piece of traffic of some sort. So that whole approach has been sort of uh, abandoned. So that's like a single multicast channel that could be shared between multiple sources. Yeah, that was the that was the sort of original design of multicast. And it was uh, kind of, I mean, the way I look of at it. Of any source least... multicast, not IP multicast. The original design of IP multicast was one source, many receivers. And then any source multicast was the idea that you could tune in to a multicast well, group and get multiple sources, and then you'd select which source you wanted to listen to. I'm not sure how original you mean, but like the IGMP v1 and the MLD v1 only yeah. had support for any source multicast, right? So the, the users would only say, I am now part of this group. Any, any yeah. traffic sent to this group destination IP address I would like to yeah. receive. And then it's like up to the network to figure out how that, how they find yeah. out yeah. what sources they're talking about there. Right. Oh, sorry. No, I'm thinking of, yeah, no, there was a, an attempt to try and put multiple channels in a single multicast group. Any source was allowed was such that anybody who joins a multicast group could send. That whole saga was sort of this 10 year plus long false start in my opinion, at least for the one to many distribution case. It, this is probably a good point to talk about the fact that the ITF is a forum 
or failure primarily. <laughs> that is, a lot of what gets proposed at the IETF goes nowhere. There is no um, process yeah. in the IETF that filters garbage before it gets to the RFC stage. Um, well, not not in any strict sense. I, I totally agree yeah. with you. You get you do get some review and feedback, but yeah, it is not always sufficient to prevent a dedicated mm. uh, you know practitioner from turning a yes, bad idea I, into an RFC. Some, I, I totally agree. Somebody with sufficient commitment and time and energy will always get an RFC up to draw you know to be submitted. For example, there's some uh, clown who submitted an IPv10 draft, <laughs> and it's the worst written piece of oh. trash. I mean, it's, it's a it's a comedy act, uh, it, and, he's, and the person is actually still out there trying to make it fly. I, uh, you know, I've never been quite sure whether he's trolling us or not. But I, 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 <laughs> I was in the troll, room that day fair. he presented that, and I didn't know the same thing. It's like I don't know. I mean, how to it, take it's, this. Uh, that one is was, not going to make it to RFC, by the way. Um, no. <laughs> you know that the filters are sufficient. Version, yeah, to catch but, that one. Yeah. Uh, it's a you know. <laughs> That that work in progress is is uh, is going to need some substantial revision before it gets uh, before it gets any IETF consensus. I would say, but um, I agree, but you're right. But I guess are... my point was is there are drafts, there are working groups, and there are RFCs. In fact, a substantial number, if not most of them, that will never have any support or implementation, and in fact, are bad from start to finish. So. Just I think that's fair. Um, right? Yeah. Because so, we reject kings and queens and blah, 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 <laughs> you know, the, 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 the quote, you know, we believe in rough consensus and running code. That also means things that are half-assed, badly thought out, Silicon Valley style, suck it and see, doesn't matter about the user or the customer, screw them on the way through. Maybe we'll get a few successes and the successes are what matters, not the failures and who got crushed along the way. Well, Certainly, you know, when when a thing hasn't been tried yet, really, and you're trying to get enough of a spec up that you can have it be interoperable, it's really hard to tell whether it's going to be a bad idea in practice. Um, I agree, yeah. So that's kind of why... the flip side of this is that, you know, the ITU process where everything sits in committee for five years <laughs> until the consensus forms well, um, you know, is the alternate path right? and is the only other path that seems to work. So I just wanted to express the fact that, you know, you're talking about the failure of multicast standards is not necessarily a reflection on the failure of the multicast or of the ITF. But as a customer, you need to be very smart about what you're buying and know yeah. when you're being presented with a, you know, with a, with a turd sandwich. I, I agree with that. I would not recommend to anybody that just because it's an RFC means you should implement it. Don't put it on a 10-day. Because <laughs> then the vendors will the vendors will implement it and it will <laughs> well on, on an RFP. Yeah. So uh yeah, 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 yeah gotcha. Right, yeah. So yeah. um it, yes, excellent point, but I'm gonna say that uh we're trying to avoid that. That's part of what I'm doing here, right? I mean yes. I'm trying to do outreach to the operator community and make sure that that we don't come up with something that's not going to be deployable. I have zero interest in making an RFC that nobody implements um, yeah. and that, that we can't use. I am more interested in actually making it run than I am in, in wrapping these up into an RFC. Although I will, I will jump through that hoop if it helps. Okay. Um, sure. You know, sure, sure. it's uh, <clears throat> so, you know, we're, we're going to be trying some trials this year. Um, I mean, what we're really trying to accomplish at this stage is like, 
okay, I've been working on this for a while. I think I, I have a, a, a system that I think is going to work okay, right? And my bosses are trying to figure out, am I crazy or are we actually going to be able to get, uh, you know, networks to pull this traffic in and do the packet replication because that sounds like a great win-win for everybody, right? So if we can actually get the, if they agree that this will work, if we have some networks we can point to that said, yeah, they did an analysis, here's the costs they think it's going to take, here's the sort of, uh, uh, you know, profile of what they, what we think uh, will happen with the traffic and, and how it will mm. cause gains for us and for them, then then we can see that there is a win-win out there to be seized. And, uh, yeah. we can well, it also has to be said that there could be a win just inside a single network here. Hmm. Yeah, so, absolutely. Yeah. Right. So Comcast, for example, is rather unique, um, not only for its ability to abuse customers and to give bad service, but also because it runs IPv6 <laughs> in its backbone, right? Yeah. And it's it's sort of like unique in the sense that they've done something that almost no other carrier outside of China and Asia Pacific has done. So in the Western world, they're one of the few carriers that are running IPv6. I think Deutsche Telekom has a few parts of its network running IPv6 only. But if they were to sort of pick this up and run with it, even just internally as a big enough player, there would be a win for them if they were to support this just by reducing the amount of CDN traffic traversing their backbone. Uh, so, yeah, and not just their backbone, but like I said, their cable loops too. I mean, the ca- the, yeah, the local loop, like the unloading the cable, loop. the local That's loop right. is a big thing and improving the thing. customer experience. Yeah, yep, especially during those peak days that are you know mostly driven by these kind of single events, right? Yeah. Y- yes, and now that the the base load, because people are moving to work from home, and that seems likely to be a sustained trend. The, At least know, for a while, yeah. Really, I mean, the demand for traffic keeps growing. This is not something yeah. to get away from. Yeah. 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 Networks are built to the 95th percentile. It's not the 95th percentile that's being affected by people changing from centralized working to decentralized working or, you know, moving out of offices and working to home. And I believe that will be a permanent trend. Yeah. Substantially. Yeah. There's no, you know, it, and when I mean substantial trend, 30 to 50% of people will probably not return to the office in the way they always have. They'll go into the office one or two days a week, sort of thing. Seems likely over time. The majority of people will move to a new work. That means that the local loop has a load problem in terms of the base load. But when those major events happen, if it's against a, ho- a higher baseline, then you've got overload events much more than yep. you have had before. Yeah. So that's exactly right. it, there is a possible way, uh, business, you know, there is a value proposition here which says if I'm a big enough carrier with a big enough problem in the local loop, then implementing this makes sense to me. However, you are also dependent on the equipment makers and the operating system makers to implement the necessary changes to support this protocol. So it must signal it. It must make the calls to the multicast <laughs> protocol. Yep. That, so, yeah, that, that's actually what, what I want to know, Jake. Or what are You've got something that you think will work, but considering what Greg just said, what are the potential roadblocks here? Because there is a big request, I believe, of, of several different communities to make this thing work. Yeah, yeah. So, um, I mean, the uh, so I would say the biggest uh, thing that's not out there today is probably the um, the capability in the home routers, right? So that is there in some networks, especially in Europe, uh, where people have kind of taken the trouble because of their IPTV services 
to make it work for uh, for Wi-Fi connected devices for their customers, right? So in the places where people have kind of jumped through that hoop, then this is a solved problem for those specific networks. But in many networks, that is not the case, right? So there's this there's a couple of things that you need out of your Wi-Fi home router in order to make this uh, really ubiquitous for everybody. And that's one of the reasons we wanted to kind of get this on people's mm -hmm. radar now. If people start working on that today, then in three years when we've got you know production traffic running that's making use of this, then they're going to be ready to, to take advantage of it with just deploying yeah. a few extra boxes in their network, right? So, yeah. so if you can get the customers in your network to be running... Um, you know, home routers that will do IGMP and MLD proxying and that have the multicast to unicast conversion at layer two, then you'll be in great shape when this starts producing real production traffic. Thanks. One of the big things that's happening in home home networks is MDNS. Apple's using MDNS, and I think other vendors are coming around to the, the multicast DNS as a yeah. discovery service. I would say, yeah, I would uh, I would go a little further on that. There's another thing that you can do in your home routers that would really make a big difference. Yeah, because this uh, this DNS SD stuff is is really pretty cool and can enable uh, customers in your network to discover standardized services uh, within your network if you can get their network to have a search domain in it. And you can do that through DHCP, but you have to set up that home router to pass that through the DHCP in order to get it into the home devices so that they can discover your local, you know, web services of, of various kinds. Yes, I, I would totally agree with that. Uh, even beyond the MDNS part is to get that DHCP in there to get the, uh, the service discovery part. Uh, but mm. the MDNS for discovery is also pretty useful. Like most, most multicast things will, or most uh, home routers, will support that level of multicast, but that doesn't really rely on the multicast to unicast conversion because, you know, you can do a very small rate of, of sending multicast over Wi-Fi and it doesn't really matter how you do it. But when you try and send like data traffic that takes, you know, 20 megabits of your path or, or more, then mm. you're going to need to do multicast to unicast conversion for, uh, for a lot of your home routers. So, yeah. And, and also to pat to to propagate the join uh, upstream. So the other thing that happens in the MDNS thing is, um, you know, that's only within the local network. There's nothing that goes upstream. Yeah, it's purely a local discovery in the in the land. Exactly right. It it almost goes back to the old SPX protocol. Yeah, in, in some I, ways, I think, except just happens. Uh, yeah. I don't I don't know that much about that one, but yes, I've I've looked through the MDNS <laughs> stuff and. Uh, and talk to Stuart Cheshire about it. And, and it's a, you know, there is some really useful stuff there. Um, it's a little bit different from the multicast that I'm talking about where you're trying to do data yeah, transfer yeah. with multicast. Yeah, so no, it's just that a, one. A you got to propagate that yeah. Service yeah. discovery, yeah. yeah. And I think the, the, the challenge that I can see here, though, that the, the obvious one is there's a lot of complex moving pieces here. Protocols have to be implemented. Now, at least this time around, they don't have to be implemented on every router in the path. <laughs> you could yes. literally have them at at pops in the network, or it's like a, an edge technology, if you like. They call it. Yep. Anything that's in the network is now called an edge technology, provided it doesn't have to be in every device. It's kind of like the current fashion. Remember when uh, pink ties were in fashion 20 years ago? That sort of thing. Yeah, yeah well... Uh, 
you know, <laughs> our marketing department thinks they invented it. I'm not sure if it's true or not, but um, yeah, they, I, I mean, it's a, it's a good descriptor in some ways, except now it's been kind of overused. But yeah, uh, yeah. it's just, you know, there's a lot of complexity here. The software code that's going to implement interdomain multicast is going to be complex. It's not going to be. And one concern that I have is that networking vendors struggle just to make a decent BGP implementation in 2020. Um, and certainly things like PIM and, you know, all the other types of multicast, those implementations, they struggled with that for decades and even today still struggle to produce decent, predictable, stable multicast implementations. Are we in a place where we think vendors are ready to 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 move on and start getting things better? Well, That's a question I'm not sure I can answer. I think it does depend on, you know, how hard do they lean into it. Um, I'm not totally convinced, but I think that, you know, Competition is going to be key here. Uh, we certainly are planning to put up um, kind of open source versions of this that will be adequate to get running and mm -hmm. uh, adequate to purpose for um, uh, for kind of making things work uh, at least at a at a reasonable at a reasonable scale. And then it's really you'll you know, um, I mean the, it, the vendors may or may not buy in on this, right? And and I hope they do at some yes. point. And you're going to need it to really scale up, maybe. But um, yeah, that, but I that's think that's a challenge, see, because start. I think the vendors are going to push back against this. A lot. Uh, well, um, that's not what I'm hearing from. Like, uh, you know, I, yeah. I stay on pretty good terms with like uh, Lenny and Greg at, at Juniper and Cisco, respectively, and, mm -hmm. and some of the Huawei folks. Like, uh, I, I don't see a good reason that they'll push back on this. In fact, they they uh, tend to be supportive. Mm -hmm. They would love to to be able to sell more of their multicast products, especially with beer coming up. Um, you know, the, and I think beer is actually going to play a role in, in doing a good job at, at removing state from the network, uh, from the internal part of the network uh, for doing packet replication across that. Um, yeah. That'll make, that'll make the whole system a lot more scalable within the receive within the networks that, that kind of choose to do the ingest that I'm looking for here. Yeah. So, so that's one thing. Then there was the hardware issue, which is the packet duplication functions that were that had a very low level. Um, I yeah. think that, that's, so you didn't convince him, Jake, he still hung up on the, uh, the replication so, part. <laughs> no, I, I hear you. And, and I, again, I'm not going to, I'm not going to argue that. So another point, maybe I didn't make clear is like, it is okay if you do multiple ingests, right? If you only mm -hmm. get a benefit like south of your BNG, that's fine. Why don't you run an ingest yeah. right next to your BNG and just run it south of there, right? Yeah. And so if you only run this protocol in the local loop, yeah, it doesn't exactly. have to be in the backbone. You know, you yeah, know, yeah. So you're not going to run it on your core routers. Basically, you might run it on your very, very edge devices. Right. So I mean, we're kind of agnostic whether you want to run it on your core routers or whether you want to put it all the way down at the edge. Like, I mean, that is like a, a thousand to one difference for us for mm -hmm. for some networks, right? But but what it gets you is that that extra thousand to one underneath that BNG uh, for so for that popular popular content. Yeah. So the just thinking that through, it could be something that a, a provider could just deploy to an area or a region of the network piece That's by right. piece. Yeah. It doesn't actually you can deploy a complete it. network. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, it's it's okay to deploy it just like where you're having trouble you want to address. 
I mean, in some ways, that's that's yeah. If you've got an overloaded network zone or no a neighborhood yeah. or something like that, and you know that Xboxes and PlayStation support the protocols, you could yeah yeah. yeah exactly. Certain streams that are widely deployed, you you can implement them for that, and it could really uh, take take us a, a large number of packets off your backbone. Right. You want to allow for some probably flexibility there. Like we're probably going to be running a number of different streams and we'll probably have varying degrees of popularity on the streams within different places. So you're going to want to sort of see what's popular and make sure to put those into your, uh, into the list that you're ingesting and keep out the stuff that, that you've only got. Like, I mean, if only one person has joined to that thing, it might be worse than doing it unicast. Right. It's really, you only get gains when you're going right. to, when you have multiple yeah. people pull it in. And again, this is not an all or nothing solution. It's a, it's another tool in the toolbox that that's going to help things long-term. Yeah, that's right. The idea is to get incremental growth on this where people are seeing value. That's kind of the approach we're taking here. So, you know, in terms of roadblocks, different networks might have different roadblocks, you know, and, and like I said, that home router thing is, is one of the big ones. Like if, if you're in a network and you can start on that today under whatever excuse you can, like, hey, we could do this for an IPTV system and Akamai is talking about doing some multicast traffic in, in three-ish years or something. I mean, you know, yeah, like get that ball rolling so that you're ready That's, when it comes. But I think the big one here is if if the CDNs can go to the endpoint makers and say, take pick up this protocol because it's going to be good for your customer. That's the key business aspect here. It's going to be the CDN companies coming together, Akamai, Cloudflare, et cetera, et cetera, and saying to the endpoint makers, look, we need to, you can save money on our CDN because we deliver less traffic if you right. implement these things. The only way the endpoints are going to implement that is if it yeah. somehow they get a value out of it. Right, right. Getting a receiver that can make use of the multicast, this is, a, this is another, uh, you know, you could say potential roadblock, right? One of the ways we're trying to address that is by adding the capability to the browser, right? So the idea here is that, um, you know, we're going to have web pages and the web pages will be able to do a, a, a join of an SG and issue that join. And you'll be able to have a, a sort of web app on your web page that can receive that multicast and make use of it. So this also, we've got a prototype running, you know, it, and it can play video. And uh, it's using the same the same protocol. We ported our uh, the product I, told, I, I mentioned, right? We've got this IPTV product that that runs as a regular walled garden IPTV system, right? But uh, we just took that receiver, ported it into WebAssembly, stuck it on a web page, uh, added this this uh, uh, multicast receive API to the browser, and off we go. You go to the web page, you click on play, and and you get uh, you can start getting these segments built out of your multicast traffic right yeah the, the challenge here is the business value to the endpoint makers why would xbox implement this client why would microsoft like it took well uh, i mean 10 years for microsoft to implement ipv6 because they'll get blamed when the games don't get downloaded that's right exactly i mean xbox and playstation like their incentive is actually pretty clear honestly they they you know mm. they're going to get a better faster game delivery for those popular games because you know their their users, it'll turn on and it'll be able to use however much bandwidth the user can get spun up, and it won't be bound by just how much you can get out of all your CDN customers because that's where it's bound today, right? Mm -hmm. For these two hundred gig games that 
they try to send the you know 60 million 100 million people it, you can't deliver that you can't deliver that in just a couple of days that's mm. that's like where we're at today like those yeah, have to be you know you say that but i mean I, I i i agree with you that there is some incentive there but i'm not sure if that's a business incentive that's a technology incentive and when i say business incentive the only reason people implement ipv6 in Mac OS or Microsoft is because it became a tick box on government tenders. They didn't implement it because there was a business value to it or any other reason. It was literally because it was implemented on the, the, the US government, particularly where the DOD said all future networks must have IPv6 and therefore all products we buy must have IPv6 support and it must be included on the tender. And that's when Microsoft implemented IPv6. Right, but Everything else just doesn't get done unless there's money in it somewhere. We're looking into that, but I mean, the uh, all the normal OSs, it's already mm -hmm. built in. They can you can do an IGMP join on like mm -hmm. every endpoint device yeah, I've been yeah, able to and find. And then the apps have to do the same thing. Yeah, the no, app, I'm not the, the app that, is where you need to have it. Right. I'm not saying it's not going to happen. I'm just saying that the business case is not as clear as say SD WAN. Yeah, I mean, I agree with you yeah, that I'm or, not sure that. PlayStation is going to go implement this thing, right? But the real question is, like, are they going to allow us to put something, you know, to write something and then uh, deploy it with them, right? Because, like, if we want it to happen, are they going to stop us, right? That's the that's the question. It's not um, not will they, you know, sink a bunch of time and effort into it. It's more like will they block it from happening? And I don't see any reason for them to block it. Well. Jake, what is your your request to the community then? What are you looking for as you've talked about a, a lot of these different protocols that are in development in the IETF right now and there's drafts and work going on? What what do you want from the networking community? Yeah, so the big first one is that that I would say at broad scale is like, yeah, get start taking care of your home router deployments. See if you can like get this on your list of things that that they'll need to take care of so that you'll be ready when it comes. Um, you know, if you're able to get more into it, then like we would love more feedback from uh, from the operator community. You know, dig into these specs, take a look at them, see if you think it's going to work for you. Um, we are doing some trials this year. Uh, we're you know we're going to have to limit it to like probably about six or you know or so uh, networks that will that we that we'll work with. We have. Um, some interest from a bunch that we've talked to, but uh, depending on kind of, you know, who's in and, and what they're interested in doing, we, we might be able to, to fit uh, some others in still this year. So if you, if you really think this is interesting enough, then, you know, drop me a line and let's, uh, and let's talk about it. Cause, uh, cause we could, we could consider whether we can get you into the trials. Um, but whether you're in at that level or not, just looking on the looking at these specs and kind of seeing if it makes sense for where you are, uh, for where what your network is going to be able to do, uh, you know, lab with some of this multicast stuff, get get used to it because um, we're going to try and and send it is is what I think is going to happen unless you know unless the results come back that no it turned out Jake you were crazy after all and, and my bosses <laughs> fire me like that's at this point still kind of a possibility but. Like I've got it all running at, at home, you know, I've got it all uh -huh. running in lab and, and I don't see any technical roadblocks here that are insurmountable. Um, the other thing is if you code, then, you know, 
or if you want to uh, do labbing and, and play with the ingest platform, um, getting feedback on those fronts would would also be great. I can point you at a, at a bunch of things. Um, and uh, uh, there's there's like you said, there's lots of work to do here. This is not like I'm trying to roll it out today. This is like have it on your radar and be thinking through it. And yeah, if you if you want to get more involved, then I got plenty for you to do. So the IETF list, then the best way to interact with you and uh, the rest of the community on this stuff? Uh, for those specs, but um, you can reach out directly to me uh, on email at jholland.akamai.com. And, um, you know, if you'll be kind of involved at the day-to-day -day level, then there's a Slack repo where a bunch of uh, a bunch of the multicast cabal hangs out that um, Lenny Giuliano at Juniper runs. Uh, so I can get you into that if you're, uh, if you're interested. Um, you know, my GitHub, uh, stuff is a good, good place to reach me. Um, grumpy old troll on GitHub. Um, grumpy old troll. I love it. <laughs> it it's, it's, it's almost too bad. You stole that one. Yeah. A lot of, a lot of people yeah. might've liked to have that grumpy old troll. Uh, outstanding. I mean, I, I figure if I'm working on multicast, I'm 95% plus to end up bitter and jaded, but you know, <laughs> we'll, we'll see how it goes. So. Jake, thanks very much for being a guest on Heavy Networking on the Packet Pushers Podcast Network. This was a, well, if this wasn't a heavy networking conversation, I don't know what is. So that was, uh, that was outstanding. Really, really great stuff. And if you enjoyed this conversation as you're listening, well, you can find this in many more of our fine free technical podcasts along with our community blog. That's all at packetpushers.net. Just go there and start clicking around. You'll find all the different podcast newsletters and so on that we offer. And uh, we're on Twitter if you like that. We're at, uh, at Packet Pushers. And we're on LinkedIn if that's the only place that you can get to that your company allows. By golly, we're there. And uh, take a minute and rate us on Apple Podcasts. We'd appreciate that. And last but not least, remember that too much networking would never be enough.